Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Programme here at the London School of Economics. And I'm very pleased to welcome you on behalf both of the Ralph Miliband Programme and of the LSE's International Inequalities Institute, who are jointly sponsoring this event, to the event this evening um, on global tax justice in the 21st century. Now, as many of you may know, activists and scholars have been working together in a kind of global tax justice movement for many years on these issues. But recent calls by high-profile political figures, people like President Biden, people working in the OECD and so on, have brought a new spotlight to this issue. And so we wanted to bring together a panel to consider the opportunities and the challenges that are now facing the global tax justice movement, both in the global north and in the global south. And we've got a, a great panel to do that. I'm going to just quickly introduce each of them for you. So our first speaker is Alex Cobham. Alex is the chief executive of the Tax Justice Network and a founding member of the Commission for Corporate Taxation Reform. He's worked at Oxford University, at Christian Aid, at Save the Children, as well as at various international organisations, UNCTAD, the World Bank, and so on. And he's been the co-creator of some important indices, including the Corporate Tax Haven Index. He's recently published a book about illicit financial flows, and that, I believe, has just come out with Oxford University Press. Our second speaker is Jyoti Ghosh. She's Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she was previously uh, based at the Johal Nehru University in Delhi, where she was a major influence for many years. Her research has won prizes in a number of countries and also from international organisations like the International Labour Organisation, the United Nations Development Programme and others. And as if that's not all enough, she's a major public intellectual whose opinions are sought out by newspaper editors in a range of countries around the world. And she's a notable contributor to the important current affairs magazine in India, Frontline, where she's long had a column. Our third speaker is Arun Advani. He teaches at the University of Warwick, where he's the director of the Centre for Competitive Advantage in the Global Economy. And he's also a visiting fellow at the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSE, a research fellow at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and a commissioner on the Wealth Tax Commission. And he writes about taxation, both of high income earners in high income countries, but also about problems of taxation in low-income countries. Well, I just want to, before I start, draw your attention to the fact that we have a live captioner and BSL interpreters at today's events. And if you want to activate the captions, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screens. If you want to make use of the BSL interpreting, please pin the two interpreters to your screen. And to do this, you have to hover over each of their videos, click the three dots and select pin. 
Well, um, our, our panel are going to each speak for about 15 minutes and then we should have a, a good half hour for questions and discussion. If you have questions, do uh, please put them into the Q&A and we'll try to choose a range of them to put to the speakers at the end. But first, before I call on our speakers, let me just ask you all to sort of metaphorically join me in welcoming our speakers and our panel today. So we're going to start with Alex Cobham, then have Jyoti Ghosh, then Arun Advani um, in that order. So Alex, can I turn to you? Thank you very much, uh, Robin, and and thank you. It's it's a great honour uh, both to to speak in the the Ralph Miliband um, series and with the International Inequalities Institute, but also to to share a, a at least a, a virtual stage. Um, with Professor Jayati Ghosh and, and with Aaron Advani, um, so I'm grateful. I'm going to um, share some slides and I will talk through, in a sense, the, the state of tax justice globally um, as, uh, as we would see it and perhaps leave other speakers to uh, focus on particular areas. Um, let's see if this works, I hope it does. Um, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll talk through, first of all, the four R's of tax, which is really the, the reason why uh, the tax justice movement says that tax matters, why we think tax matters. It's not just about revenues, um, but rather more than that. And then talk about where we are today. What is the state of global tax justice in the 21st century? And finally, um, talk a little around the tax justice agenda, and where the current OECD proposals uh, fall very far short uh, indeed, leaving us with uh, a great deal, a great deal to do beyond that process. Um, so the four R's of tax, um, the one that we all think of very easily as, of course, revenues. Um, and revenue is, is certainly uh, important. There are other ways governments can fund themselves, but over time, Revenue turns out, uh, tax revenue uh, turns out to be the, the most um, sustainable and independent source uh, of funding. Now, to get ahead of myself, the state of tax justice, if you want one number for it, is this. $483 billion is what we estimate the loss to be in revenues each year. So almost half a trillion dollars due to the cross-border tax abuse of multinational companies shifting their profits to, uh, to dodge tax and of individuals hiding their assets and income streams offshore. Um, and I'll talk more about where that uh, comes from and how we might interpret uh, that a bit more later. But to give a sense of it, the revenue losses and the underlying movement of profits uh, and of income streams um, constitute a first-order global economic uh, distortion and problem. This is not small beer. The second R of tax is redistribution. Um, again, we often think of tax um, as redistributing from the rich to the poor, at least we hope it does. Um, in practice, uh, tax systems play a part in that, but it often isn't um, as big a part uh, as we hope for a whole variety um, of reasons. Here's a, here's a picture. This is from uh, Brazil in the early 2000s, but in fact, it could be from many countries in many time periods. Indeed, most countries today would look something like this. What this shows us is the distribution of direct taxes by households. 
So at the low end here, we have households with less than twice the national minimum wage in income um, paying a few percent, 3% perhaps of their income in direct taxes. That's taxes on incomes, profits and capital gains. At the top end, Households with more than 30 times the national minimum wage uh, in income are paying perhaps 10% of their income. So this we might think is a good progressive uh, schedule of taxation. Um, but if we look at indirect taxes and notice that the, the, the scale on the axis has changed completely, we find it goes the other way. Lower income households are paying almost as much as half uh, of their incomes in indirect taxes. That's taxes that we tend to notice a bit less. Um, the taxes that you pay when you buy something, VAT, consumption taxes, taxes on uh, fuel, uh, excise tax. Um, meanwhile, at the top end of the income distribution, those richest households are paying much, much less, perhaps only 20% um, of their incomes. So, of course, when we put these two together and look at the total tax distribution, it's the regressivity of indirect taxes that dominates. And as I say, this is Brazil in the early 2000s, but the picture is broadly similar for many countries um, in many time periods. Households at the top end pay perhaps, in this case, a quarter of their incomes uh, in tax in total, split between direct and indirect. Households at the lower end paying almost uh, half. What we assume to be progressive because we focus on direct taxes very often is not. Um, now, the other thing to think about is that at the far end of each distribution, we have different things going on. The households who are at the lowest incomes are not some random selection of the population. They are disproportionately people, groups who are already marginalized for various reasons, groups who are racialized, indigenous peoples, um, nomadic people, gypsy Roma travelers, uh, households with someone living with a disability, um, LGBTQ uh, people particularly households headed by women, all of these are disproportionately likely to be at the low end of that distribution. And worse than that, they're likely even to be uncounted. So in some sense, out of the formal tax system, but also out of the formal benefit system. And that gives us this group of people down here at the end of our distribution who are outside of our measurement of inequality. Now, meanwhile, at the top end, because of the scale of tax abuse, um, and we know that um, cross-border tax abuses, the hiding of assets and income streams, absolutely dominated by the very uh, richest households. There we have uncounted money. So the combination of uncounted people at the bottom of the distribution and uncounted money at the top of the distribution means that true inequality is much higher than we realize. Even uh, the data that we're using to make decisions about redistribution um, is systematically distorted um, against the, the aim we have in mind. So the tax system based on the data we see is already not doing the job that politically our preferences would, uh, would suggest because of this problem of the uncounted. The third R of tax, recognizing I need to speed up a bit, is, is repricing. If we don't have effective tax systems, we cannot effectively change the prices of public goods and bads. We can't hope to make uh, the private costs of smoking tobacco, for example, pay for the public um, health damage that that does. And thinking about the climate crisis, we cannot hope to use carbon pricing or the pricing of other emissions as a way to, to deal with our own bad behavior if we don't have effective 
tax system. So repricing is the third and important R. But perhaps the most important R of tax is the one we always uh, tend to overlook, representation. You know the American uh, Civil War cry, the cry of independence rather, no taxation without representation. So it turns out in reality, it's the other way around. There's really no effective political representation when we don't have good taxation systems. Almost the only thing consistently associated with improvements in the quality of governance, with reductions in corruption, um, is the share of tax in government spending. When governments are more reliant on tax revenue, they are more responsive to their people. This is why tax is the glue in the social contract. It's what makes states respond to people. So when we don't have effective, effective taxes, we don't have effective states. They don't have the money to spend to meet public needs, and they're not representative anyway. So even what they do spend tends not to be doing what uh, political preferences would suggest. Tax makes it all work when it works, and when it doesn't, nothing works. So back to that question of representation of whom in this picture, it's the households at the low end who are paying more of their income in taxes, but importantly, less of their income in direct taxes who have the least sense of tax citizenship. Because it's direct taxes, it turns out for individuals, are the ones that hold you into this social contract. That's when you feel like government is spending your money and you want to hold government accountable. Indirect taxes like VAT that we notice much less are much less important in driving that relationship. So the people at the lower end of the distribution are not only paying more of their income in tax, they're getting less back, less of a sense that the government is accountable to them. So we drive political inequalities as well as economic ones by having bad tax systems. Okay, the state of tax justice then is the reason why we have bad tax systems, and this is in high income countries as well as low income countries, because we don't deal with the international issues of cooperation um, and we don't prevent countries behaving badly, acting as tax havens, we end up being much less able to do good taxation in our own countries, in particular to tax, uh, to, to do direct taxation of incomes and profits and capital gains. We cannot see the wealth, we cannot see the income flows, and so we don't tax them properly. What does that look like? You can find that in all these tools we've developed at the Tax Justice Network. The Financial Secrecy Index tells you which the biggest secrecy jurisdictions driving illicit financial flows and corruption that others suffer from. The Corporate Tax Haven Index does the same for profit shifting. We put them together in the Illicit Financial Flow Vulnerability Tracker, so you can dig down into the detail and see where each country is vulnerable. And in the state of tax justice, uh, a report we publish once a year with the Global Alliance for Tax Justice and Public Services International, we show the scale of losses that each country suffers and that each country is responsible for. To give you a sense of that, here's the picture for the Netherlands, a major corporate tax haven imposing many billions of dollars uh, on other countries around the world. Um, responsible for eight and a half percent of global tax losses on its own, some $36 billion. To take a, a different country, lower down the per capita income scale, Guyana loses um, roughly 36% of its tax revenue to these cross-border tax abuses. 
more than uh, three times its public health budget. Small amounts of money that are inordinately important um, for countries at lower income levels and therefore have direct impacts on um, measures like child mortality and maternal mortality. Who's responsible for this? Well, here we are. It's the OECD itself. Um, OECD members and their dependent territories are both responsible for most of the risks that we find in the Financial Secrecy Index and the Corporate Tax Haven Index, and the majority of the losses, both to corporate tax abuse and offshore tax evasion, that we find in the state of tax justice. Um, the UK, in particular, is the biggest single actor when we consider it with its network of dependent territories in every single one of these categories, with the USA and the Netherlands coming in, um, in some cases, quite a distant second. The UK's responsibility, both for the imperial legacies, the, the, the extraction and violence it's imposed, but also the way it continues to extract, albeit with less violence, through its tax haven network, the UK's responsibility is huge. Uh, and the conversation these days about UK corruption needs to be cognizant of the international damage, not just the damage the UK is doing to itself. As um, Derege Alamier, the coordinator of the Global Alliance for Tax Justice said, trusting the OECD when it's um, responsible for the majority of corporate tax abuse, trusting it to set our corporate tax rules as we do, um, is like trusting the wolves to, uh, to look after your chickens. So to close, uh, and I will um, try and wrestle through this quickly, we think about a tax justice agenda and we think about where the OECD reforms are, we can see just how big the, the gap is. The Tax Justice Network was formed in 2003 and we put together this, this policy platform we call now the, the ABC. These are transparency measures and also a set of um, uh, aims, quite radical reforms around corporate tax. Now, all of these were written off by the OECD and others as being completely unrealistic, even where they, they could see the point. They said, this will never happen. And these days, each of these is really part of the global agenda, and yet none of them has been fully delivered. We do have a multilateral instrument for the automatic exchange of financial account information. So the UK, for example, can see the Swiss bank accounts of UK uh, taxpayers and vice versa. But Malawi can't see either because they're not allowed to receive this information. So there's a further injustice, even where we've got progress there. On the B of the ABC, beneficial ownership, increasingly now we do have public registries to tell you who's the warm-blooded human being behind a company or a trust or a foundation or a partnership and so on. But not yet across the board and certainly not in the, the UK-linked uh, territories and many other countries still. Country-by-country country reporting, a measure we proposed, has moved forward. We now have an OECD standard, but the data is held privately by tax authorities. And guess what? Most lower-income countries do not get to see that data, data which is crucial to understand the profit-shifting that multinationals are doing. In terms of the tax uh, rules themselves, the argument has long been we need to move to unitary taxation, taxing the multinational as a single unit, not pretending that it's maximizing profit in individual countries. And to do that with formula apportionment, to tax the global profits 
according to where the employment and the sales and perhaps the assets are to divide that global tax base between countries according to where the real activity is, not under the, the mythical arm's length principle. And finally, a, a minimum effective tax rate um, so that even where you can shift profits, the, uh, the effect, the incentive to do so is, is minimal. So how far has the OECD gone on these uh, tax rule changes? The ambition has been there since 2013. The G20 told them we want to better align taxable profits with the location of real economic activity. But so far, there's been precious little progress. The first process from 2013 to 2015 delivered almost literally nothing that worked other than country by country reporting, which hasn't still been made public. Um, now, the process that began in 2019 gives us some possibility, a pillar one that was intended to go beyond the arm's length principle and introduce unitary taxation to make profit shifting much harder, and pillar two to introduce a global minimum tax rate, even under Trump and with uh, Biden then coming in and giving this renewed momentum to make profit shifting much less attractive. The problem is what we've got now um, is very far from that ambition. In pillar one, instead of talking about apportioning all the profits of all major multinationals, we're only looking at a very small percentage of the profits of barely 100 multinationals. So the revenue gains are uncertain and they are small for almost all countries, certainly all lower income countries. Um, Meanwhile, countries are being forced to give up unilateral measures, what are being called unilateral measures, like digital sales taxes, even though it's been shown that the big tech companies will pay less under Pillar 1 than they're currently paying under those DSTs. Lower income countries are also being asked to, to accept binding arbitration on how this works out, even though the experience of binding arbitration in all sorts of areas is almost uniformly bad for lower income countries. Under pillar, pillar two, we do have a global minimum effective tax rate, but it's set so low at 15% that it's not likely to reduce the incentive to shift profits out of countries with tax rates of 30%, perhaps. But more than that, the revenues have been tilted inordinately towards headquarters countries, the major OECD members who are really driving these rule changes. Lower income countries, meanwhile, are being forced to accept a maximum, not a minimum, but a maximum rate that they can charge under withholding taxes, where in some cases they have higher rates in their treaties already. So there's likely to be a revenue loss there. And what there is definitely across the two of these is a loss of tax sovereignty for an uncertain, possibly zero gain in revenue. So our call to countries, the call from the global tax justice movement, is not to sign a blank check until the OECD agrees to publish an economic assessment at the country level and the global modelling and allows there to be informed national debate in each country, no one should be signing, signing the binding multilateral instruments that the OECD is now working on at great pace. So where are we? We're looking back again at these tax justice measures, thinking they're not delivered. They're not yet delivered in a way that benefits lower income countries that challenges the inequalities in taxing rights that lower income countries suffer. Ultimately, and I'll finish here, the only way we're going to get there is to stop banging our heads against the wall of the OECD, to stop expecting the group of rich countries who are responsible themselves for the majority of international tax abuse to change the rules 
to benefit others. We need to change the dynamics instead. That means moving the global architecture to the UN. A UN tax convention has now been proposed repeatedly by the G77 group and recently by the high-level FACTI panel um, to, the, to the UN Secretary General. We need a UN framework convention on tax to bring the ABC of tax transparency uh, to truly globally inclusive standards and to create the basis for an intergovernmental body, a, a genuinely globally inclusive one, to negotiate these reforms in future. And lastly, a centre for monitoring taxing rights so that there is a formal uh, policy body, not a civil society organisation like us, but a UN body responsible for publishing analysis of the responsibilities of individual countries and jurisdictions for the tax abuse and the human rights losses that they impose on every other country. That is the tax justice agenda and the challenge. The momentum is really growing now within the UN. And I think the further that the OECD is, is seen to be delivering unfair proposals, and even there perhaps failing to get even its biggest members like the United States fully on board, the quicker we can move ahead with these kind of architectural reforms that will eventually be the only way that we deliver something like global tax justice. Let me finish there. I'm sorry for running over. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. And we're going to move straight on now to Professor Jyoti Ghosh, um, who will make her contribution. Thanks so much, Robin. And let me also add that it is really a pleasure to be part of this panel, to be associated uh, with the International Inequalities Institute and with the Ralph Miliband program that you're running. And I'm also really grateful to Alex because he's actually provided this brilliant overarching sort of summary of the state of play. So what I'm going to say is really in the nature of footnotes to that discussion rather than any new stuff. But let me specifically move to, um, oh, excuse me for a minute while I just sort this out. I have to move to the first slide, don't I? Here we go. Yes. So I'm going to actually take up just one of the issues that Alex raised. And there are many, many important issues, uh, particularly with regard to the global asset register and preventing individuals from moving the high net worth individuals, as they're called, the extremely rich from moving their money across the globe and so on. But let's just look specifically at why it's so important. You know, in this post-pandemic period, as you will see from this slide, what's absolutely shocking really is um, the, uh, wait, can I, um, can I make this? the uh, slideshow, yes. Okay, yeah. What's really striking is how much the variation is between what the advanced countries have been able to spend post-pandemic and all developing countries, whether they are the emerging and uh, developing uh, economies markets or the low income countries. So you see that advanced economies have spent around nearly a quarter of GDP additionally in fiscal support with significant rises in deficit spending. The emerging market countries, middle income countries broadly only 6% on average. In some countries it's even much, much lower and low income countries on average 2.4. 
percent of GDP. To give you a sense of what that means, in the United States, the average additional fiscal spending per person has been excess of $25,000 per person. In the low-income countries, it has been $2 per person. That's the kind of difference we're looking at. And that's huge because it affects everything, right? Uh, one of the big reasons for this is because developing countries really lack fiscal space. And as Alex has already identified, and I'm just adding here, one critical reason for this is the tax avoidance, which is losing huge amounts. Just developing country governments an estimated $240 billion per year because of this shift, particularly of corporate profits to tax havens. So I'm not even getting into the extremely wealthy playing around uh, and moving their money to tax havens, but just large corporations who are supposed to have open accounting and enable governments to tax them, shifting that much. And unfortunately, it's all really quite legal at the moment. Really developing countries are much worse off because their revenue sources tend to be more limited. There's only so much you can extract from indirect taxation from already poor populations. And so they inevitably rely more on corporate tax receipts even for most basic public services. I think Alex already highlighted that. But what's going on is really that multinational corporations are effectively working as one company globally. You have Apple in the whole world, but then they pretend that they're Apple France, Apple India, Apple Ireland, Apple US, and that enables them to actually- Excuse me? That enables them to actually uh, treat each individual corporation as an independent firm. And so they, they're trading at arm's length with each other. They're not, they're not acting as one part of a global company, even though we all know that effectively they're a global company. And in fact, their shareholders also know that they're one global company. What does that mean? It means that they can actually minimize their tax liability. They shift their profits to jurisdictions with low or zero tax rates. This is what is called base erosion and profit shifting. And you can do this in many different ways. You can say that, well, all the intellectual property is held in Ireland, which has this lower tax rate. And so I have to pay lots of royalties and technical fees and so on from my company in France or in Germany or in India to Ireland, because that's really you know, what they need, even though they have only 20 employees or whatever. This is perfectly legal, unfortunately. And this is why we need to have a new system that doesn't allow multinationals to move this, uh, move their money around through various accounting rules. Now, it also means that the rules are skewed in favor of rich countries, because even if a lot of the production and the sales and the employment happen in developing countries, the home country tends to get the biggest share of the tax from global profits. Now, of course, all of this is then accompanied by this tax competition. Globally, we have seen corporate tax rates have fallen by more than half in the last 30 years. And this has actually made things even worse for developing countries. So what can we do? Uh, I am a member of an independent commission uh, on the reform of in international corporate taxation, which has been suggesting two things, both of which are really quite easy to do when you think about it. One is to have a minimum global tax rate. And we've suggested 25% because that's the median of the current international tax rates. That's really in the middle 
of tax rates that has a half of the country's tax higher, half tax lower. But even the United States in early 2021 proposed a tax rate of 21%. Either of these would make a huge difference. But another important aspect is what we've called unitary taxation of multinationals with what is called formulary apportionment. That is to say that every country gets a share of the global taxes from a particular international company. What's the principle behind this? It is to say, well, listen, if the company is one company, tax it like one company. Don't tax all these individual companies separately because that's what's enabling them to get away with this. You tax a company according to its global profits, not whatever profits it's claiming to make in your own country. And how do you estimate that? According to a formula. You estimate that this is my share of the global profits of Amazon or Apple or whatever, according to the sales in my country, the employment in my country, the capital employed in my country, okay? So you have a formula. Let's say a certain proportion will determine the share that you will get of the global profits. And then you tax at the same rate that you're taxing your national companies. In other words, all you're doing is saying that the multinational corporation must be paying the same taxes as a domestic company. It's a perfectly legitimate and fair principle. And in fact, it's already operating. The United States, because state governments have taxation powers, they actually use the same principle for their taxation for, of corporations. So it's not something which is fallen from the sky. It's already operating in uh, the United States. So what has happened on this? Alex talked about this, about how this was earlier something that was completely derided by the OECD. But then eventually, through a lot of pressure, they brought in what they call the inclusive process for base erosion and profit shifting. Okay? And it began with just OECD members. They brought in other developing countries mostly to sit at the table, but really not at the main table. They were kind of sitting around on the side chairs along the walls. Uh, 140 countries are currently member of the OECD inclusive process. And very recently last year, the G7 took a decision on this, which was then ratified by this inclusive framework. And it's based on two pillars, as Alex has mentioned. The first pillar is actually finally accepting this idea of unitary taxation, which as he mentioned, has, they were completely opposed to saying, oh, it's impossible, can't be done, et cetera but they have watered it down so much that it's almost ineffective. So first of all, what is the idea? That you don't actually tax all the profits. You only tax some weird notion of residual profits. So what are residual profits? They're all the taxes, they're all the profits above 10%, which are supposedly routine. What on earth is that? What do you mean routine profits? Which corporate taxation system in the world does this, separates routine and residual and only taxes residual. No one does this. All corporate taxation is based on the total profits. So this is bizarre. But then they say only 25% of those residual profits are going to be subject to this unitary taxation idea. So imagine, first of all, you're saying only companies that are making more than 10% profits, which of course, then they can fudge their books so that they're not making more than 10%. Then of that, only a quarter of that will be subject to this unitary taxation. And it's only the biggest companies that will qualify. So it turns out that less than 150 companies globally, mostly digital companies, would even qualify 
for this uh, unitary taxation. In fact, it turns out even a country, a company like Amazon may not qualify. The additional revenues that developing countries would receive would be very, very little. Globally, it's going to be less than 15 billion, which is a joke. You heard about the numbers, right? 470 billion, 250 billion are the tax revenues being lost by developing countries to corporate skullduggery of this kind. So basically nothing. In return for this, in return for giving up all of this, developing countries are being told you have to give up on any unilateral measures like taxation of digital companies, which a number of countries, including my own India, have imposed on multinational digital companies. And you have to submit to mandatory dispute resolution. And we know that all of these arbitrations and dispute resolutions are massively skewed against developing countries, against states in general, and in favor of the corporations. So you're really saying, give up all your independent taxation for this little carrot that we're dangling, in which you're going to get a negligible additional revenue, because we've accepted the principle of unitary taxation. What about the second part, which is called pillar two? And that's really about the global minimum tax rate. Again, it was, we had asked for 25%, the USA originally proposed 21%, but now the compromise is for only 15% effective minimum tax rate. Now that's really ridiculous. That's close to tax haven rates like Ireland, which gives 12.5%. And of this, again, additional global revenue, supposedly 150 billion, but most of this would go to rich countries both in absolute terms and in relative terms. So for example, the European Union's tax observatory, which has done a number of statistical exercises about this, they've suggested that about one fifth of the extra revenues with respect to current corporate taxes paid will go to developed countries. Developing countries will get only 2% of additional revenue of their current corporate taxes. And in any case, this is not going to deter base erosion and profit shifting from developing countries because developing countries currently tend to have higher corporate tax rates. So there's actually a danger that this so-called minimum of 15% could become the standard or even the maximum simply because this base erosion will continue and there will be so much pressure on developing countries to actually avoid that. So either of these is really kind of not working out is a travesty of the original intention. So what's going on right now? Well, out of the 140 members, 136 of them have agreed to implement pillar one, okay? Which is the unitary taxation idea. Pillar two is optional at the moment. There are four countries that haven't endorsed, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Kenya. But let's face it, most countries in the developing world didn't really engage with this process. Half of the African countries didn't even attend the negotiations. So currently all of this is non-binding, but there are pressures for a multilateral convention to be signed. And in fact, the talk is that this will be signed in June of this year. Until that convention is signed, developing countries still have the power and freedom to walk away and to undertake national or unilateral measures like digital taxation that will give them more revenues and are easier to implement. Or they could even go for imposing themselves a sort of unitary idea of saying that I will tax my share of what I believe are your global profits. 
But the minute you ratify this multilateral convention, it becomes legally binding and it's difficult to escape. And let's face it, these tend to have a very long shelf life. So countries that agree to it will effectively agree to give up their taxing rights for at least the next 30 or 40 years. And as I've mentioned, there's hardly any gain in terms of more tax revenues. So how do we move forward from here? How do we stop this from becoming a disaster instead of a potential way of really making multinationals pay their fair share, pay the same as domestic companies? All of this has been happening at the level of the executive, you know, governments, negotiators, administrators, and so on. And let's face it, it reflects the lobbying power of multinational corporations. We now know there's tremendous pressure on developing countries to sign and ratify this multilateral convention. What can stop it? Legislatures can stop it. They can scrutinize what they're being asked to sign. And basically, you shouldn't be signing a blank check. You should not be saying, well, all right, we'll give up all our taxation rights because we might get this additional 1%, 2% in tax revenues. And we will not actually use any other powers in future because ratification requires legislatures to be involved. And so if we really want to prevent an unequal and unjust treaty or convention that reduces taxation powers of national governments, under this guise of improving global taxation rules, we have to keep demanding more ambitious reforms. These have been suggested, they are available. G24 has suggested them, ICRIC has suggested them, the UN Tax Committee, the FACTI that Alex mentioned, has been suggesting them as well. So we have a template of what can be done. It's important to mobilize to prevent this being signed so that we can actually get genuine tax reform, tax justice, even on the corporate agenda. And I think I mentioned that this is just one of the major steps. There are several others which can be done, but we can discuss those, I'm sure, if there's more questions about those. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Professor Ghosh. Um, we're going to move straight on now to Dr. Arun Advani, and then after that, we'll have questions and discussion. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Robin. And uh, like the other speakers, I'm uh, delighted to be on this panel and to have been invited by the, the Ralph Milan program and the III. Um, so I think I'll, uh, I wanted to touch on a couple of different things to what we've spoken about so far. We've so far talked a lot about uh, corporations and corporate tax, which has been a really uh, kind of central part to the agenda that people have focused on in terms of global uh, tax justice uh, in, in the previous years, uh, as both the previous speakers laid out. So I'll just pick up on a couple of other challenges that I think are, uh, are kind of important and coming down the line uh, that we'll need to be focusing on. Uh, so the first, and then they tie on quite nicely actually to what Alex said in terms of the kind of four uh, principles he had. So I'll just pick up on the principle in terms of revenue and what we can achieve in terms of getting revenue from tax. I'll talk a bit about repricing. And the others are important, but given the time, I'll focus on those two. So in terms of revenue, I think there are, the big challenge that fundamentally we have in terms of taxes is which things are more mobile and which things are less mobile. Things that are mobile that are hard to tax are the ones that uh, you know, typically get undertaxed. And that's exactly what the speakers have just been talking about uh, in terms of corporate profits. I think that the, a, a major kind of parallel cha challenge to the one we've just been thinking about and just been hearing about uh, of the mobility of corporations uh, relates to the mobility of uh, top income and top wealth individuals. Uh, and there's, that's mobility not as much in the sense that they will necessarily physically move their own locations, but that they are able to move the way in which they uh, receive incomes uh, in a way that means that, that the tax isn't due uh, now. 
So let me kind of lay that out in a bit more detail. So there's, there's kind of three things uh, that people can do uh, at the top end of the distribution that typically aren't available to uh, your average person uh, that makes their incomes harder to tax. So the first is that they can uh, take convert their income into forms that have access to lower levels of tax. The second is they might not uh, take the income directly at all. They might have, you know, they may have their returns come in the form of shares that increase in value. So you might think of uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, both you know, owners of very big companies or part owners of very big companies. And so they don't have to take a big uh, income from that. They can you know, get some returns from the increase in the value of those shares. Uh, and then the third thing they could do is actually to, to relocate either where the assets are held or relocate where they are. So kind of going through those three things, uh, I mean, the first, the first issue that we have, and that's not only an issue at the very top end, uh, and it's a challenge within countries already, is that uh, individuals might structure their incomes in such a way that they pay lower rates of tax. So it might be that instead of uh, being paid uh, as an employee, for example, uh, you might take your income as uh, in the form of self-employment that typically has slightly lower tax rates. You might even be able to uh, run uh, your incomes through a small company that you set up. If you were to do that, you could pay yourself in the form of dividends. That typically has an even lower tax rate. And so those kinds of things that people can do, structuring their income differently, can allow them to uh, kind of have lower tax rates. And that's a problem, as I say, within a country. It's also a problem uh, that uh, is faced across countries um, because that makes it possible for people to uh, think about where they want to, to locate those incomes. So the second, uh, the second part of that is instead of just taking, their, taking an income in some form, uh, if you think about the, uh, I don't know if, if people will have followed, um, but kind of famously last year, Elon Musk went on Twitter to say, should I realize some of my capital gains? I have these shares in Tesla that I own. Should I sell some of those shares? And if I do so, I will make a, a kind of capital gain. That is, I will have sold those shares for more than the value they were when I acquired them. And I will therefore have to pay tax uh, on the, those gains. And if I don't sell those shares, then I've got access to that return. I've, I've made that profit. I've got that wealth but I could not take it, I could borrow against it instead. And that means I have something that I can live off without needing to, uh, without needing to uh, pay tax because I'm not taxed on taking a loan. I would be taxed on the capital gain at the point that I do something about it. That's particularly been a, a problem that people have been very aware of uh, in the US because in the US there is this kind of larger share of billionaires who own particularly large fast growing companies. It's not you know, unique to the US. Um, but in the US, the kind of concentration is, is the largest and therefore um, calls for adjustments to a tax system uh, to account for that have been kind of strongest there. So the idea of having, uh, say, a wealth tax at the very top um, that, that a few people have been calling for there, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, both when they were, were running to be the president, uh, called for different, different structures of, uh, of tax at the top end. Uh, and so those are, those are problems that occur, as I say, within a country. But the global nature of that is that those people may also choose to locate themselves in different places. Um, so we've been doing some work, for example, in the UK uh, on uh, a group of people called the non-doms, the people who are non-domiciled for tax purposes. And so those are people who may be based in the UK, they may spend lots of time here, uh, but they make the claim that their permanent home is elsewhere. And as long as their permanent home is elsewhere, they're able to uh, benefit from uh, depending on how long they spent uh, in the UK already, uh, particular uh, benefits of having lower tax rates on wealth that they hold abroad. 
Uh, and so that encourages them to store their wealth uh, in other jurisdictions so that it's not taxed in the UK. And depending on where they store that wealth, it may not be taxed there as well. So this international mobility uh, aspect creates a kind of key, uh, a, a kind of crucial challenge uh, when we're thinking about global tax justice. That's completely in parallel uh, to what we've just been discussing uh, for firms, for corporates, um, but that's also relevant uh, at the individual level. So that's one set of challenges that are distinct from what we've just been hearing about. The other set of challenges uh, that I thought would be particularly worth mentioning uh, at this time is the taxation of carbon. So as uh, Alex again laid out, one of the other big uh, challenges that we have, uh, one of the big roles that, that tax has is to get the price right uh, for various kinds of goods. Where there are things that are global bads, and carbon is you know, really up there as one of the most striking ones that we're all very aware of at the moment. Um, there's a need to put a price on that. And again, there's a need for that price to be determined in some global sense, because if you were to say that particular individual countries uh, put a price on carbon domestically, uh, what that does is to allow, uh, you know, for example, uh, corporates who are producing something to base themselves uh, making that, undergoing that production in countries where there isn't that carbon tax and where they will therefore be able to benefit from uh, not paying the tax rate on the carbon. So this is what's sometimes described as carbon leakage. Now, there are things that, you, that countries and uh, groups of countries can do to tackle this. Um, so the European Union at the moment has uh, proposals for what they've called a carbon border adjustment. Essentially, the idea is they will calculate in some sense how much uh, tax should have been paid on some carbon that's being imported into the, into the EU. For example, you might import, you know, some company might import some steel and they'll say, well, you're importing it from such and such country that doesn't charge you anything. And we would have charged you this carbon price, given the carbon that's embedded in there and the fact that you didn't pay a tax on it already, we're going to charge you at the border when, you, when your steel arrives, we're going to charge you um, a carbon tax effectively. So that's one kind of unilateral approach that's, that's being considered as a way to uh, tackle this global issue uh, that we need to stick a price on carbon. Um, but there's also you know, a wider question of, will countries be able to enforce that? Will it be effective? Uh, and ultimately, because those things are much more administratively complex, because you've, you've, you know, it's much harder to assert as the, even as an organization or a group of countries as big as the EU, it's much harder to assert that you, as an importer, have to have all of the information and, and the EU can verify it to know exactly how much carbon is in there. The EU necessarily will have to find some uh, kind of administrative process to assign a kind of reasonable estimate of how much uh, carbon is embedded in the steel and therefore what a good guess of the price should be. And that's clearly much less good than really being able to accurately get information on that and make sure that we're really taxing all of the carbon that's in there rather than just some average guess, which will put off the, the, the people who are actually producing a low uh, rate of carbon, but are facing a relatively high tax because they're, they're being taxed quite heavily despite their low rate of carbon and will benefit those who aren't actually doing as much to reduce their carbon emissions and therefore are kind of relatively speaking being undertaxed. And so kind of solving this challenge of how to tax carbon well is another key uh, global challenge when we're thinking about tax justice. Uh, and it's important, you know, again, as Alex laid out at the top, you know, this tax justice is not just a, a matter of thinking about tax. It's really about the societies that we all live in and what we can achieve. And in a world in which uh, mobility is, you know, high, whether that's for carbon, whether that's for companies that, that Alex and, and Jayati were talking about, 
whether that's uh, mobility of either wealth or the wealthy, uh, in all of those cases, that mobility uh, kind of erodes the ability of individual uh, democratically elected governments to make decisions about what goes on in their country without you know, having to worry about the fact that when they make those decisions, without there being some international agreement, organizations or individuals can move across, uh, across borders. And so that's what makes it a kind of a real challenge. And I think that's why you know, parallel processes need to be set up for both of these targets uh, in a way that has, has been going on uh, for, the, for the taxation of companies uh, with you know, the, the limitations that were mentioned uh, by the two previous speakers. Finally, I think the, the, the last thing I would just sort of mention in this area is that but in both of those cases, we'll be raising revenue, be that raising revenue on uh, wealth that's being moved across borders and, and not currently being taxed very effectively, or be that on carbon. So the final part to the thinking out tax justice is really thinking out what's the optimum way to distribute that wealth? How should it be handed out uh, between countries? And so there's this uh, process that was described for ways in which you could think about doing that uh, for companies by kind of formula apportionment, that is thinking about, you know, what is the share of activity that's taken place in those countries? But in a way, that's, that's missing something we normally think about in the tax system. If you think about the tax system within a country, we typically think about the idea that a government wants to actually actively re redistribute from richer households to poorer households. Now, there's you know, a lot of disagreement about what the right level of that redistribution is, and you know, different people have different preferences for how much uh, transfer there is between richer and poorer. Um, but generally, I think most people would accept that a, a sensible tax system will be doing some of that redistribution, even if we disagree on the exact levels. So I think the, the kind of final challenge is thinking a bit about whether there's some way in which, rather than thinking purely, well, what's the share that you ought to have as a, as a country based on some level of activity, thinking about, well, what would a sensible redistributive system look like that's trying to support poorer countries to help them actually uh, kind of get better off, that would help them invest in infrastructure, invest in their people, so they would themselves also be able to uh, increase their incomes uh, in the medium term. So that's the kind of final challenge uh, that's, that's out there. And I think that's a, a much harder challenge to tackle um, because clearly at that point, it, it's zero sum. It's really what's going from going to one country is not going to another country. Um, but I think it's an important challenge that we, we ought to be thinking about and we need to be uh, taking on. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll end and hand back to Robin. Well, thank you very much. Thank you um, to you, Arun, and thank you to all our panellists. And um, we've got a, a large number of questions here. So as I, I mentioned at the beginning, we'll have to be selective about them. Um, but I'm going to, and I'm going to put them um, to specific speakers. Otherwise, we'll just spend the whole time answering the same questions. Can I just ask you if you're putting in questions to indicate where you're from as well? Uh, because it's interesting to our audience to hear the range of different places people are writing from. Um, so I'm going to um, start actually with a, a question which I'll, I'll direct to Professor Ghosh. Um, I, I believe all the speakers are meant to be visible from this point on. Um, this is a question from uh, D.T. Cochrane, who refers to an economist, Dean Baker, who has suggested that taxing market capitalisation for publicly traded corporations rather than taxing profits would be a better option. And the questioner notes that most digital service tax are based on revenue rather than profit uh, and asks, do you think we should shift the base of corporate taxes from profits? So as I say, um, Professor Ghosh, if you could just comment on that. Sure. So, you know, uh, it's, there's no reason for the two to be, diff uh, to be contradictory. 
to tax either one or the other. A tax on market cap is really a tax on your assets. It's a wealth tax. It's, and it's similar to other wealth taxes. It's quite interesting to me that people say, oh my God, we cannot possibly have a wealth tax when everybody pays property tax without batting an eyelid. And that is a wealth tax, right? So in other words, it is possible to have wealth taxes, both for individuals and corporations, independent of an income tax, which is a flow tax, which is a flow, uh, a tax on how much income you receive. And those are profits. So I'm totally with Dean in, in going for a tax on market cap, especially at the very high rate, and not for every company, but for very, very high market cap corporations, a, a small proportion of, a, of high market cap companies, in addition to having a profit tax, because a profit tax is an income tax. Of course, there is the other point that it's really easy for com companies to manipulate their profits. You can always deliver a lower profit rate through various juggling. It doesn't only have to be base erosion. You can count in all kinds of other things as costs, which are not necessarily so and so on. Even so, there are ways to combat that. The reason why countries have imposed a sort of turnover tax on digital companies is because they have no means of establishing the profit and because that's a simple way of getting some return from these companies who are all effectively paying zero tax in your own jurisdiction. So the reason why you have a tax on sales of digital companies, on turnover, is because that's the only way you can access it, really. You can't today, without some more broad agreement on uh, a, a unitary taxation, get into the issue of can we tax our share of their profits? Thanks very much. Um, so I'll now direct the next question to Alex Cobham. Um, this is a question from Jim Davies, who asks, many developing, who notes that many developing countries have tax incentives to promote investments and asks that if due to these incentives, the effective tax rate is less than 15%, will those revenues go to the parent company? And how should you avoid this scenario? The question it goes on to ask, is there any research work on this at present? This is a really important question. Um, I mean, even before we get to incentives, you know, the, 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 the order of rules in the OECD proposal creates this egregious inequality. So imagine that a, a French multinational shifts a billion dollars out of Brazil, where it's making money, into Bermuda at a zero rate. So the, uh, the, the basis of the rules would suggest that $150 million, 15%, has to be paid on that $1 billion of profit. Who gets it? Not Brazil, where the activity took place, where the profits were made, but France, because they are the headquarters country. If, in a related scenario, if Brazil is effectively allowing that profit shifting to happen or allowing the profit in its jurisdiction to go untaxed deliberately through giving incentives, then again, it would be the, the parent company that has the first call on topping it up. But the latest addition to the rules, and this is still a very, you know, a moving target and countries are being, you know, really having their arms put up their backs to sign things that are being drafted, even though the rules are changing as we speak. There's a domestic qualified minimum tax, which would mean that, in a sense, between Bermuda and France, Bermuda might get there first. They can put in the 15% and take it. Now, that's fine in the sense that, you know, we kind of want Bermuda to, to tax profits that are really there. 
and that's sort of better, you know, that they do it and be less tax haveny than than France getting it or the US, as is the, the normal case for the, this size of multinational. But none of that helps Brazil or Ghana or Malawi, the countries where the profits are being shifted out, regardless of what their tax rate is, get nothing from this. And that's the frustrating thing. The proposal that we'd put forward for a minimum effective tax rate would have ensured that the top-up tax went to the country where the real activity took place. And that's been completely dismissed by the OECD. You know, we've discussed it with uh, treasury departments around the world, including the US. People get it technically, but they're not willing, those countries with the power, the headquarters countries are not willing to give up what will be a disproportionately great taxing right in favour of lower income countries. And that means, as it stands, the proposal will make the global inequalities in taxing rights worse rather than better. And that's, you know, that's why countries have to interrogate it and refuse to sign. Thanks very much. So a question now to Arunadvani. Um, this is from Mohammed Kuram Shabia, who's a PhD student in Islamabad. Um, Mohammed asks that it refers to Professor Prem Sikha, who has argued that in many cases it's the failure of auditing firms to look into tax avoidance that is a source of evasion. Um, what is your um, take on that? So I think the it's a combination, probably. I mean, I think Alex and Jati are probably more uh, expert on corporates than I am. But uh, I would think of it as a combination of the fact that often rules are drafted in a way that allows companies to do these things. Now, that doesn't mean that those are good things for them to do. But in many cases, they will be able to point to some rules and say, look, we followed the rules. Our auditors can see that we followed the rules. So we're allowed to do this. That may not be what you want, but we've set up a rule, uh, like a set of systems that allow that to be possible. There are cases which then, you know, in some cases, have come to light and have been, you know, quite famous of kind of big audit failures where auditors really just weren't doing their job and where companies had actually completely misrepresented the truth. But in many cases, the, the problem is less that they are lying and telling us something that is completely untrue than that they're showing us this is exactly what we are doing and actually what we're doing is within the rules that we have right now and therefore you actually can't do anything about it. What we, what we are doing is, is within the current system. And so I think that's exactly why uh, people have been calling for an overhaul of that system because they've looked at the, the situation and said, we're seeing that it's harder and harder to tax corporate profits. And the problem is not that mostly companies are you know, being untruthful. It's mostly that companies are able to do these things and we haven't yet come to a good solution. And so the OECD solution last year was the, you know, the G7 solution, which was then adopted by OECD was a first step in potentially thinking at that. And you know, Alex and Jayati have pointed out all the limitations and flaws of that as, as a kind of proposal in that direction. But it really is about changing the system because at the moment it's less that companies are, are doing things that are against rules. It's that the rules are, are too lax and allow them to do those things. Thanks very much. So now I have a question from Sohi Kim, um, which I'll direct to you, Jyoti, if that's all right. Um, the questioner asks, could you elaborate more on what should be done to balance the share of additional tax revenues that would arise after these reforms? And the questioner refers to the data you put up in which 19% of the total um, went to the developed world and only 2% to the developing world. What, what could be done um, about that? And um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I think that's, there's a second question here. But you have to put your speaker on. 
It's okay now? You can hear me. Yes, we can hear you. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, the answer is essentially, as Arun and Alex said, you know, you really can't base it on the home country of the multinational. You have to base it on the country in which they're operating. And you can look at operation in terms of sales, employment, the capital in that country. You know, you have to you have to look at where the profits are being made rather than the home origin of that company. And that's where the big difference is coming up right now. If you use a formula that has some reasonable combination of, say, sales employment, you would actually get a much fairer and better distribution of this. Of course, the question is, what do you do when developed countries are unwilling to give up their shares? And I think Alex has put his finger on it that, you know, let's face it, nothing we have seen in the last few years suggests that there's any international solidarity that's suddenly going to emerge from the shadows and take over. So what do developing countries do? And I would argue that one of the things they do have to do is actually go in for combined unilateral application of this principle. So a, a particular developing country on its own can't do it, but a group of them can. And they would be large enough markets for these companies not to be able to say, well, the hell with you, we're just moving out. They would be forced to respond. So whether it is regionally or it is through a group of other uh, reasonably large emerging nations together, there is scope for developing countries to act on their own without the rich countries necessarily giving them the permission to do so or determining the rules of any new global tax deal. And that is something that would be given up completely if you sign the multilateral convention, which is why there's so much pressure on countries to sign this convention, because I think everybody knows that this is still a possibility. Thanks very much. Well, there's a related question, which I'll direct to Alex Cobham from um, Deriji Ali Mayu, um, who's from the Global Alliance for Tax Justice. And uh, the questioner again draws attention to the fact that developing countries will get hardly any additional revenues and asks, how can the cloak of inclusivity in inverted commas in this opaque process be exposed effectively to prevent this tax deal of the rich from becoming a binding multinational multilateral agreement. So I guess this questioner is asking on a more political vein in a way, what, what, where is the pressure coming from to change things? Yeah, look, it, it's a great question. I think it's the question that will dominate our thinking for the next six, possibly 12 months, because you know the OECD is working very hard to deliver the binding uh, multilateral instruments that will make this real, that'll move it from a purely political commitment in October to one that really does bind countries in and you know they're aware at the OECD that the US is in trouble now and may not be able to sign it itself that could lead to everybody else saying oh well perhaps perhaps we don't need to either um, and that's the last thing that they want so the pressure is going to be on to get people to sign these things before anyone thinks it's fallen apart um, and that's you know that's where this question of inclusivity comes because what you're getting made is this argument that no, no, there were developing countries in the inclusive framework, and therefore this is a this is genuinely owned globally. If you look at the inclusive framework, you know we keep hearing this 139, 140 countries. It's actually 139 countries and jurisdictions. If we take out the 20 or so dependent territories, most of them, what most people would consider tax havens, 
it's only 120 countries. If you take out the OECD countries, then there's even fewer. What you end up with is perhaps 50, 60 countries that people might consider developing countries or lower income countries. The same kind of number that there is, for example, as members of the South Centre, which has strongly opposed this deal. The same kind of number that are in the G24 group, which has strongly opposed this deal. The same kind of number that there are in the African Tax Administrators Forum, which has been extremely critical of the process, saying that only G7 countries have been heard. So if you want to talk about whether there's developing countries support for the OECD, there clearly isn't. There's, there's much more opposition. But very few countries have been able to reject it outright. And we've seen Nigeria, Kenya, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, the ones that stood up and said no, rather than keeping their heads down. And that's a brave step. Really come under enormous pressure from the US, from the OECD, from others. That's the pressure that's continuing now. And that's, you know, I think why we have to insist that the OECD publish the revenue estimates and that there be national level debates before anyone signs this blank check um, and makes it uh, irreversible. Thanks very much. So I have a question now for Arunadvani. Um, this is from Matthew Martin, who asks, uh, referring to your comments on carbon tax, how can we tax carbon in a progressive way? That is where the richest in the rich countries um, pay much more so that we don't end up adding to ordinary people's living costs. Yes, yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important point. I think there are two um, different things to think about here. So the first is if you look uh, within countries at who pays a carbon tax. If you go to a high-income country, you'll see that carbon taxes are generally regressive. The poor households will pay a larger share of their budget, a larger share of their income in carbon tax than rich households will. That is actually not true if you go to low-income countries. In low-income countries, you see the reverse pattern. It actually hits, uh, it, it's, it's paid more by rich households in those countries than, uh, than by poor households. Looking across countries, carbon is consumed much more in high-income countries than it is in low-income countries. And so if you think globally, if you were to have a global carbon tax in some sense, globally, much more would be being paid by high-income countries than being paid by low-income countries. And that comes back to this idea of, actually, there's a lot of revenue to be raised there and to think about how best to distribute it. And so if you think about you know, some of the things that are sometimes talked about doing within a country, there's sometimes a discussion of country, for countries that don't have a carbon tax, the idea that you might introduce one or you might raise the carbon tax and have you know, what's essentially a, a carbon tax and the money being redistributed lump sum. So everyone gets a check that is, if there are you know, 10 million people in the country, you get one 10 million of the total revenue that was raised from the carbon tax going back to everybody. And that makes it kind of politically palatable. That makes it uh, nice because if you're, if you're uh, relatively uh, low income, you're going to get back more than you uh, put in, assuming you're not somehow low income, but consuming very high amounts. At a global level, that is even more re redistributive because so much more of the carbon is consumed in high income countries and much more of the revenue would go back to low income countries. So that is one important thing to think about. The other thing just to say is that while that's all true, it is still the case that within all countries, there will be some low-income households that will be worse off. That's particularly true actually in higher-income countries where there are, there are low-income households within the country who will, will pay uh, larger shares of their budget. And so that's why it's important to think about carbon taxes as part of a broader tax justice, if you want to think about it that way, agenda, that you shouldn't think of the carbon tax alone as we, we should not do this perhaps because it's regressive. We should think it is a good thing to do. It is the right thing to do. It will 
solve one big justice issue around carbon uh, emissions, which is important kind of long term. If we don't deal with that now, we're just putting off the problem for someone else to deal with later. But it will also have this redistributive effect that the polluters are paying. But to the extent that there are poor households that are being hurt by it, that's where the other parts of the tax and benefit system are there to try to kind of protect those households uh, and should be being used. They are automatically being used. But the case to be made is to use that system as well alongside having a carbon tax. Thanks very much. Um, so an another question for Professor Ghosh from Andreas uh, from the School of Public Policy at the LSE, um, who refers to your comments about developing countries having the power and freedom to walk away and to implement unilateral measures in lieu of the OECD's proposal. And the questioner asks, what is the strategy that these countries could take in dealing with the threat of a trade war or WTO dispute settlement proceedings? Um, I think the strategy would have to be to combine, but it's much easier to do this in combination with other developing countries. So you could think regionally, you could think of a group of Latin American or African countries or Southeast Asian countries together doing this. You could think of groups of countries across regions doing this. It's much, much easier to do this if you do this along with some other developing countries. So that really calls for, shall we say, side deals of, along the OECD inclusive process. Um, if, I, if I could just add a little bit, you know, Arun, I have to confess, I'm, I don't disagree with you that a carbon tax is in principle a right thing to do. I worry that given what we know of the lack of international solidarity, and the fact that finally there's never compensation to those who lose. There is, it's not just a political opposition, there's a real question of justice involved. And I don't agree with you that the carbon tax in poor countries, in developing countries, doesn't fall on the poor because fuel is, an is a universal intermediate. It enters into every other price. And we have done work in India that shows very clearly that when you raise the price of fuel, it's not the fellows who go out in their cars who really pay for it as a share of their income. It's the impact this has on all other prices through production and distribution that impacts directly on the poor. So unfortunately, it is regressive. So the question is, how do you compensate? We know nationally, internationally, there is no compensation. So until we can put clear mechanisms that will force the compensation, I would be really wary of a carbon tax. Final point, I think the border adjustment carbon taxes that are being thought of by the Biden administration and others in the European Union, these are pure protectionist measures. These are basically saying we're going to, we have the technology to do less carbon intensive stuff. We're going to tax you guys higher because we're not giving you our technology to do less carbon intensive stuff. Okay, thanks. Um, look, there's a lot of interest in carbon and carbon taxation at the moment. I, I don't know, Arun, did you want to comment on the comments on your comments? Or <laughs> Yeah, so I think, I think I'd say a couple of things. So one is, I mean, certainly in all the work that we've done, we've obviously taken into account all of the flow through intermediates. We definitely do when we estimate the effects, look at not only the, the direct effects of the carbon in things that are consumed by households, but in how it flows through the entire product, productive system, how it flows through the international trade system to take into account the effects that you see. And when you look, whether you look at Ethiopia, whether you uh, look at Ghana, whether you look at Colombia, you look across countries, you see kind of consistently that these that carbon taxes in low-income countries and middle-income countries are not regressive in the way that they are in high-income countries, where they clearly are regressive. I think on the point about uh, kind of, will we see compensation? I agree that it's not an easy thing to do, and that's why it's an important challenge for us to think about. 
But I think the risk is that, that people who are interested in seeing a, a tax justice and a wider justice agenda think, well, we may not get enough uh, compensation here, so we won't do it, and fail to realize that in a world in which we don't do something about carbon, what we'll end up doing is creating other problems, and the people who will be harmed by those problems are the poorest. It's not that what we get to do is have the world that we live in today, or we get to live in the world we live in today, but with a carbon tax. Where we are in 10 years' time is either in a world that is significantly harder to live in because the kind of climate change problems that we've been seeing continue to worsen, and that's worse for everybody, and it's particularly hitting the poorest households and poorest countries hardest, or we get to choose to try to do things to abate that. And even if they aren't great for poor countries, which we hope we would do things to, to deal with, not dealing with those, not dealing with climate change now, will actually hit those countries harder. And so that's the comparison that we need to be making. All right, thanks. I mean, uh, uh, there's so many questions here. I'm going to I'm going to move on. Um, I'm going to take a question from Donna Carmichael, a PhD student here at the LSC, and if I can direct it to you, um, Alex. And and the questioner asks. Tax avoidance and tax evasion behaviours of large corporations, they say, can be linked to Friedman's theory of shareholder value maximisation. And they ask, do you think that corporate tax behaviour will change as, the, as a result of the rise in shareholder value maximisation? Um, is there a role for responsible business practices? Um, it, it's a good question. It's a good question because the premise is kind of is wrong in a in a useful way. Um, the the you know the reason that investors with trillions of dollars of assets have in the last particularly the last five years increasingly allied with the labour movement and the broader tax justice movement to demand that the country by country reporting of multinational companies is uh, made public is not because there's been an enormous expansion in the socially responsible investment uh, proportion of, of investors. It's because hard-nosed investors understand that this is valuable for them. What the evidence shows, um, you know, firstly, there's not a fiduciary duty to reduce your taxes. That's worth saying on, on the legal side, which used to be claimed by companies. But more importantly, perhaps, um, the evidence shows that when companies uh, lower their effective tax rate, this is listed companies on, on the FTSE 100 as the, the main piece, um, when they lower their effective tax rate, shareholders do not get a higher return. It doesn't go through to shareholders, but instead they face higher risk. Now, why is that? It seems to be because the way that companies achieve a lower effective tax rate is by being more opaque in their uh, practices and by taking higher risks. And every now and then you get caught. Um, but even if you don't get caught on the tax side, the behaviours that you're doing are not in the interest of shareholders. The benefits such as they are, are being captured by the executives or wasted on bad investments. The effect is that shareholders are now increasingly aligned with tax justice in demanding this data be public because they know that reducing the aggressive tax behaviour of multinationals is good for shareholders, just as it's good for workers who can see what the profits that are arising in the country where they work is, and just as it's good for the rest of us um, whose public services depend on um, some greater measure of uh, tax compliance. So, you know, it's, it's all good news, except that the companies and the big four accounting firms continue to resist this data being made public. Even though they now have to produce it for the tax authorities under the OECD standard, they don't want it made public, not because there's any compliance costs. Um, that argument's gone too. 
but simply because they know if it's in the public domain consistently that 40% of their activity is in the UK and 40% of their profits end up in the Netherlands or whichever set of countries are involved here, they will be under pressure every year to reduce the degree of abuse, which is, of course, what the rest of us want and need. Okay, thanks. Look, we've got a little bit more time. I'm just going to ask if you could um, have relatively concise answers now so we can try and get in a, a couple more questions before the end. Um, and first, just to Arun, can I just quickly um, give you a question from David, who's an A-level student here in London. We're always very pleased to have A-level students um, asking questions in the audience, as we often do. And it's a question about the UK, and, and the question refers to the fact that during the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8, um, government expenditure was lowered, that tax and government expenditure was lowered. And they ask, was this a wrong decision and did it arguably widen the divide between the rich and the poor? So I think many people said with foresight and certainly everybody I think at this point agrees with hindsight, including people who were involved at the time that it was the wrong decision. It was the wrong decision because it actually slowed down uh, kind of return out of that recession. Uh, and so it was bad for that reason. But also at the same time, the other thing that really widened inequalities was not only that we stopped kind of supporting poor households through as much through the benefit system. It was also that the very low interest rate period that we had after that led to big increases in asset prices. And that benefited people who held assets and didn't benefit those who didn't. And so that led to the value of the wealth that's held by people who have wealth going up a lot. And those who didn't have wealth didn't benefit from that. And that's the impact that you see on wealth inequality. Thank you. And it was admirably concise as well. Um, so now I've got a, a question for Professor Jayati Ghosh. Um, it's from Amy Burgess. And the questioner asks, could you comment on the trade-off for low-income countries of low tax on foreign companies in exchange for job creation and employment? So this is often discussed in the public realm, this sort of question. What, what do you say about this? Well, I would say, first of all, where's the job creation and employment? Which country has been, I mean, most of the countries that have actually experienced job creation and employment through foreign investment in the recent past have been those who've had Chinese investment. Let's be clear on that. It's not been the big multinationals putting in global value chain involvement has generated less and less employment for developing countries over the last 10 years. So the idea that you have to lower your tax rates to attract the investment that will create employment is actually very, very outdated. It hasn't happened for, in fact, in this century. So we really have to think about what exactly we're doing. If we want foreign investment to generate employment, you have to put conditions on that investment to make sure that it is of the kind that will generate employment. If you just want to attract foreign investment because you think it will make you look good to other investors and maybe by some miracle one of them will generate employment, that's a different ballgame. I think we have to get out of this uh, you know, assumption that uh, foreign investment is automatically going to give you more employment. It doesn't. Thanks very much. Um, well, we're getting near the end. I'm just going to ask the, the same question of all three of our panellists now before I... Um, make some final comments. And if I can start with Alex and go to Arun, then, then Jayati. And the question is simply this. I mean, are you at the moment in a more optimistic state about the potential for global tax reform, or are you not? And if so, why? Um, good question. I am very pessimistic about the OECD process, but I'm actually 
feeling quite optimistic about the global prospects because, in a sense, the the egregious inequality that the OECD process represents and would further impose has begun finally to politicize this question. So we're getting people coming into this space, the human rights movement, for example, and you know a lot of interest in the United Nations that wouldn't really have thought this was anything other than a kind of technical question before, now realizing it is fundamentally political. And if they allow it to go through in these, these skewed forum at the, the OECD, it will have you know, significant impacts on the prospects for effective statehood of most or many lower income countries. So that gives me cause for optimism. I think the campaign this year not to sign a blank check has the potential to move uh, the politics of tax within uh, a number of countries too. And perhaps one day even the OECD member countries might realise that they themselves have some uh, some reparations to, to make in this area. Thank you. So, Arun. I think on the prospects for tax and carbon better, I'm optimistic. I think we're, you know, partly because we're so far from better right now that getting better is, is the easy step. Um, but I think it, it's also something that's become, you know, of such importance and such uh, kind of so many citizens in so many countries are aware of the issues and are calling for change. And it's still the case that politicians are lagging. But the fact that citizens in so many places think it's important to do means that at some point the politicians will, ha- will be forced to follow. How, uh, you know, good that system is internationally is, is harder to uh, kind of get at. As Jayati said, I think the hard part will really be the bit where it comes to not just introducing the tax, taxes that are needed, but working out how you divide up the pie. And you know, everyone at that point will want their biggest share of the pie. On the prospects of taxing um, kind of mobile people and mobile wealth, I'm probably less uh, optimistic. I think that you know, hasn't been focused on as much. And I think uh, it, it's much harder, I think, there to get an agreement around things. And the, the kind of vested interest there will kind of have a lot more uh, say and, and be a lot more involved in trying to stop anything happening. Thanks very much. And finally, Professor Jyoti Ghosh. Thank you so much, Robin. Uh, you know, I agree with both in, in some fundamental ways. So I am optimistic like Alex in the sense that I think there is much greater citizen aware, citizens awareness and upsurge about these issues than there was even a few years ago. I think also G7 legitimacy is at an all time low, which is a good thing globally, because, you know, the, the period of the pandemic, the vaccine inequity, the obscene uh, protection of intellectual property rights, all of that has really undermined the legitimacy of the G7 who persist in thinking somehow that they still rule the world, but they don't. So I think that is going to play a role in perhaps creating more alliances of developing countries. I think within developing countries, we are reaching such extreme inequalities internally that there is bound to be more popular upside, which I hope will spill out in positive ways. Where I'm pessimistic is in time. We are dealing with very, very urgent questions, not just extreme inequality, but extreme climate change, as uh, has, uh, you know, Arun has been talking about. And we are not going anywhere near the kinds of things that are required to deal with it at all effectively. So I, I'm a little pessimistic about how much time we have to make these progressive changes. Listen, thank you all very much. I mean, I think we've had a really interesting panel here. We've heard about the importance of tax policy, not just for economic inequality, but also for political inequality. We've had a good rundown about what's on the table at the moment from the OECD and the different pillars of that, um, those proposals and the strengths, but mainly the weaknesses of them. 
And we've heard also about the importance of individual social mobility and contemporary questions about carbon taxation. Perhaps a thread that runs through all the contributions is the fact that while new principles are gaining headway, the actual implementation of them is producing a number of unintended consequences and perhaps also intended consequences, which are a cause for concern. So let me um, leave you now thanking again our speakers, Alex Cobham, Arun Advani and Professor Jayati Ghosh for a wonderful evening and an excellent debate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.